0: Hello and welcome back to the NovPod. This is episode 7, Induction and Airways. We are hosted by Anasthesia on Air, brought to you in association with the RCOA. I'm Owen Dore, I'm an anaesthetic registrar in Thames Valley, and with me as always is my partner in Central Lines, Duncan Kemp. We have a special guest on today, Kwame Asante, who is not only an AE trainee who's done his IAC, he's also a professional comedian, so he's here to show me and Duncan up for our terrible jokes. Airways and induction is a topic we could spend four hours on, and still not cover it adequately it's an area that will have a difference of opinion. This represents mine and Duncan's take on the matter and Kwame's thoughts as well. We will break it into two parts. Part one where we have Kwame talking about induction and airway and another where me and Duncan go a bit more into detail about airway management. Again this is just to make you a bit more comfortable on your first few days and weeks so do go away have a look at the resources and Really hope that you enjoy this episode and that it's been helpful. If you have a fellow novice that you think would benefit from this episode or this series, please do share it with them.
1: We're talking about inductions and airways. Let's just start off with something we've done with a few people, Kwame. If you could take us through your experience with anaesthetics. How it felt to be a trainee from a different specialty coming in
2: it's a lot of emotions you come away from sort of like a hectic either like a and e or medical environments and then suddenly you're in theaters everything's nice and clean and brightly lit and the teams are maybe not as big and rotating as the ed team so you find like a nicer sort of rapport camaraderie in the theater environment more one patient at a time as opposed to being pulled in a million directions at once it's all just a very different style of working which i think one-to-ones teaching and mentorship again is really nice especially like mirroring it with that A&E experience I think a lot of, a lot of A&E trainees then have their anaesthetics block and it's just like a, oh wow there's like a whole new world and you just mm. feel a lot more sort of nurtured and supervised and yeah it's not a surprise that you sort of lose a lot of people yeah. <laughs> at
1: that point too. <laughs> the grass is greener oh, and
0: yeah. <laughs> the head end I've seen a lot of grumpy anaesthetists in ED but I think it's the bright lights and they're looking at other people doing work it upsets them <laughs> <laughs> God look at how much work there is <laughs> oh, I feel I'm well. Let me go back to my theatre.
2: I'm a big fan of the self deprecating term in this podcast. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Going from quite a self
1: sufficient, having a few years of experience, ED trainee to suddenly being branded a novice. Do you find that was a
2: challenge? Oh yeah, I think it's definitely a useful label. I, I was a novice, I didn't know enough about anaesthetics and going into it and having that label is, I guess it's, it's safe, it's useful, so sort of everyone knows where you're at and so everyone again has a low threshold to correct you or make suggestions and I needed all of that and so I think the novice label was really good, I didn't have any ego or airs attached to it.
1: Induction of anaesthesia, quite a, a challenging concept to think about on its own, particularly Coming from your ED background, how did you find getting used to the transition of purely emergency stuff to
2: elective and planned inductions? Even though I'd not done anaesthetics, you sort of know in the back of your head, there is like, you know anaesthetics exist and there is there is a calmer mm. way of doing that. And I've not, although I've not seen it, I know that it's not like this all the time. You know there's <laughs> <it's> a calmer <laughs> way. People, yeah, people don't, and you, you know that people don't train like this and it's almost like, you learn how to ride a bike on you know, and training wheels in your local park before you're then trying to cycle through central London. It's yeah, almost like yeah. watching the central London cycle first before <laughs> then. Okay, and now we're in the park on wheels. Like, oh, oh, Okay, I'm already too scared of this, but it was good to go backwards. <laughs> yeah, no,
1: exactly. It's, it's, you know, seeing the people, I think, as part of that, how did you find preparing for an induction or an anaesthetic? Was there anything in particular that you remember being A challenge
2: or of particular importance? In terms of what I found, because in terms of the different departments and different choices of drugs or different processes, I think going from elective to emergency, I maintain the core human elements, the human factors, even if it's a lot of the you, the communication skills still have to be clear and concise mm-hmm. and sort of closely communication if you're in an elective situation or an emergency situation. I just try and hold on to those similarities and carry them through a lot of the core sort of sequence in terms of pre-oxygenation, sort of induction, just like what you'd have to do in an elective emergency again. Try and keep that structure, even though the equipment I may use or the drugs I may use may change in A&E versus elective and so forth. Keep an open mind, but also just try and, and hang on to that sort of core framework. And I think that's how I a settle my nerves and sort of be sort of build on my own learning and knowledge base
1: and i think speaking of frameworks owen is desperate to plug
0: one of his acronyms on this episode you know me i love the acronyms <laughs> um, how i prepare for an induction there's a lot of things to do there's a lot of different knowledge spheres to get in i like to use maps because you can map out your success <laughs> Great, great plug. <laughs> great plug of the acronym there. Pass and pending. M standing for monitors, anesthetic association, blood pressure, cuff, SATs. A for actions. I mean, there's other stuff going on in monitors. It's I just don't want to list everything off because Duncan and Kwame. I'll tell have, you off. I'll cut you off. Yeah, and know, edit I'll, you I'll, out in post. I'll, my mic will get muted. <laughs> A for actions. So who's doing what? P's for position. So where are people standing? How are you positioning the patient? Other P is for? Personnel personnel who's going to be there who's my port of call if I need something and have I warned them E's for equipment have I checked my machine have I made sure that I've asked the ODP if I need a video laryngoscope that there'll be one D's for drugs so making sure that you've got your induction drugs ready and your emergency drugs ready so that you can induce that state of unconsciousness that will allow you to manipulate the airway to get the patient ready for surgery. Going on, if you were to think about a recipe for a normal case, what's the combinations of things that
2: you would use in both anaesthetics and ED most commonly, Qualme? Well, in RNA, most of our intubations are rapid sequence induction, so we'd be having our powerless agent of ocaronium and then ketamine would be our own induction agent. And tests comes into any then again, they may deviate and use whatever agents that they're most comfortable using and in which case you then might see sort of propofol, fentanyl, still ocaronia, maybe something else used. Because I don't intubate regularly anymore, I probably lean more towards what the, again, what the department is more used to using, and again, that sort of helps.
0: The things that the novice will start seeing is different coloured drug labels on the syringes, and that will come on with your anaesthetics plan, and that depends what we're doing. Challenges as a novice is getting to grips with the effects
1: of those drugs in a certain dose for a certain patient and to this day there's still things that will be curveballs you know you'll have two patients same weight same comorbidities same age you give them both the same dose of the same drug and they react completely differently Mm. it comes with experience but i think also getting used to beginning to troubleshoot your induction if it's not quite going to plan as a novice, you'll see a whole load of range of things, and ultimately your practice will be influenced by what you feel most comfortable with. For example, I, as a even as a CT one, really didn't really use ketamine at all for induction mm-hmm. because I wasn't working in a trauma center. Most of the consultants mainly used propofol as the induction agent or diabetone if it was a, an unstable patient for an RSI. And then suddenly going to CT two, working in a trauma center, where on day one we were told at induction, if you give anyone propofol, you will kill them was quite terrifying Uh, (laughs) so it's a tricky thing to see but at least with induction agents there are Uh, amnesic induction agents hypnotics yeah but there's basically three you will see and it's just getting used to handling them and actually to be fair we're probably more heading to more more towards two main induction agents you will
0: see What is an airway plan in your
2: mind, Kwame? In my mind, an airway plan is sort of laying out what your approach to intubating this patient is going to be or at least protecting their airway for the procedure that you've got going forward. So, and it'll sort of start from my airway, sort of considering the airway sort of manoeuvres I may use, um, adjuncts I may bring into those manoeuvres, uh, and then going forward into sort of um, whether I'm going to do it with a supraglottic airway uh, or whether I'm going to go for a definitive airway interpreting the patient. Yeah, it's not about announcing it to you, your staff and also yourself? Sure, staff. yeah.
0: You don't hire them personally, do you? Um, yeah. <laughs> your entourage. Uh, at oh. least, I'm normally paying caffeine. As you say, I'm uh, thinking of the, am I going to have any issues ventilating this person? Mm. What am I planning on doing? And then if I get into trouble, what am I doing? Am I going to call for help? Where am I going to be on the death algorithm? And when you talk that out before you start, I think it already means you're not having to do much cognitive thinking because you've already planned for what you're doing next. Mm. Verbalising that to the team reassures the people you're with. You've thought about what could
1: possibly go wrong. You have a backup plan. And then also they know that they can get the correct equipment in good time if they need it. An important concept to highlight for novices is they will start hearing this phrase bandied around of plan A. And that when I first heard that, I was like, what do you mean, plan A? There's more than one plan. And that's an important part of the airway plan drilled into the DAS intubation guidelines, difficult intubation guidelines, of having that plan A, B, C, and ultimately D in order to verbalise that plan and get the equipment ready. So formalising it and saying, my plan A is... X. My plan B is Y. My plan C is blah. So I think having not just thinking oh well my plan is pre-oxygenate and then shove an eye gel in and that should be fine. You say my plan A is an eye gel My plan B is a second generation flexi-LMA. My plan C is go back to bad mouth mass ventilation etc. And I think that'll come with exposure to different circumstances, scenarios and also different people's practice as well a scary thing as a novice I remember is this concept of an airway plan so now I know that what we mean by an airway plan is talking through and verbalizing to your team a plan a b c d for how you're going to approach safely securing this patient's airway or dealing with the airway once you've given anesthesia or sedation making sure that you have all your equipment there Mm -hmm.
0: So that includes thinking about ventilation, if there's any other changes that you need to make with that, use a good two-handed techniques. That includes whether or not you're going to use an eye gel or a to keel tube. And it also includes, what's your backup going to be? Are you going to have two goes? Are you going to wait? Is your boss going to come in after one go? Although we like to call them consultants now. Well, sounds like you're at a kebab shop when you say boss, doesn't
1: yeah. it? Yeah. Hey, boss. i will try to interview boss. <laughs> boss man. Uh...
0: Boss man, can you... Uh... <laughs> And that's my airway plan. Is that a learning process that you had as well, Kwame?
2: Uh, Yes, I think going into anaesthetics, my airway plan, forming my airway plan, I think I started off very sort of like, oh, okay, I'm going to need this equipment. I'm going to do things in this order. And these are the, I guess, the patient situations or the conditions in which I might switch from plan A to plan B or plan C. Whereas leaving my anaesthetics rotation, I sort of grew to appreciate that It's more than just the equipment and sort of drugs and in it involves into sort of you know the the people that may support you along the way at what point you involve them how you involve them and also being very clear as to what you need from them and sort of why you're asking for their help I think yeah the human and I think that in itself has been a bit more useful going back into the emergency department that's how to talk to people and sort of how, how to get your message across. Duncan what
0: leads you to
2: changing your railway plan is it
0: the case of same tube different day or do you have more than Do you have some factors that go into deciding what you're going to do with that airway? I suppose it comes down to, I mean, we've
1: plugged this structure quite a lot, but it it is a recurring thing again and again. It's the patient anaesthetic and surgical factors, isn't it? And it's patient factors can be whether it's an elective or an emergency patient that you're dealing with, the size of the patient. Patient Patient-specific stuff is very important. And I think as a novice, you need to it all comes down to that pre-assessment part and then if your gut or your brain is going hmm there's something not quite right about this patient I'm wondering whether the normal stuff I would do is appropriate discuss it with your ODP with your senior and then get a second pair of eyes on I think moving on to the anesthetic side of things again it's the type of anesthesia you're doing and then the surgical stuff with the you know shared airway surgery positioning of the patient during the surgery
0: One of the things we need to think about is how we improve the situational awareness. You've mentioned the ODP and taking advice from them. But they don't know how to prepare that advice if you're not saying what you're seeing. And Mm -hmm. there is a grading system that we use for what we're seeing of one to four when it's direct. And if it's video, it's good Bad and ugly. <laughs> oh, I got a
1: real ugly view here. A really ugly view here. <laughs> That's gonna be in my head now. Gotta
0: make uh, sure that patient's asleep. Again. Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> that includes one is that you can see the entire vocal cords. Two, A and B is that you can see partial vocal cords. A three is that you can just see epiglottis. And four is. You're probably sticking it somewhere uh, in the wrong place, and you can say the words anterior larynx, which you'll hear a lot, which is <laughs> yeah, the, the universal excuse. excuse for a bad view. The larynx essentially is at the base of the tongue, <laughs> and really, it's <laughs> that you haven't you haven't looked, and that's, what, <laughs> that's one of the nice things your consultant will say. is like, oh, that larynx was really anterior, and you're like, oh yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, no, they, you, you turn around and you see the ODP and the guitar i like, no, no, that, was, no, no that, that would have been fine. How, how do you improve situational awareness around intubation when you are in your a more emergency setting in the emergency department? Or even
1: actually, I'd like to hear what, yes. before we even get to the airway part, just generally your situational awareness in the emergency setting in ED and then applying that to airway stuff. Did you find there was a lot of crossover? Were there any top tips or advice you could give to novice anaesthetists or
2: people coming into anaesthetics to help with that transition? Well, I think situational awareness for me it's all about the team and I think introductions and and just sort of creating an environment where people can share their insights and what mm. they see and what they think because you can have a room full of people all, all sort of seeing and know what needs to happen but if there's no communication then it's then it's not happening so knowing everyone in the room new people come in sort of making them feel welcome so they can also feel like they can say stuff with a fresh pair of eyes again like the checklist again is quite helpful because then people then have an idea of what the situation is supposed to look like. So then everyone can have that shared awareness of, Oh, okay, this is kind of deviating from what we thought would happen. Yeah. I think for me and then, and then that sort of like, yeah, flat hierarchy, everyone can talk, everyone sort of knows what's going to happen. And then I think that's why I sort of apply to most situations, be it a joint manipulation, be it a different kind of A&E procedure. And then, yeah, then you sort of map that onto sort of your emergency intubation or again, Everyone knows what's going to happen, everyone knows, and role allocation as well, so again that sort of then helps give people a bit more responsibility and, a bit and empowers them more to sort of speak up about what they've been told to look out for as well, and yeah, I think those are all useful in situational awareness. I really like that, it
0: empowers people to speak up, because I used to, and I've said this before as a novice, think that if people are challenging me or saying, oh I need to tell, that meant I wasn't doing very well, and actually it's being part of that team Mm. and if you try and shut people down you're not empowering them to speak up when there's a problem one of the things that we were talking about kwame is how you prepare for the airway and intubation we're going to talk about the actual airway management itself and this isn't an exhaustive list this is not your airway teaching these are some thoughts from me and Duncan so that when you are seeing airway management in practice or you get to do it, you can not be starting from square one. So Duncan, what's coming up? First of all, disclaimer, there are likely
1: to be a few clinical controversies we touch on. Everyone's practice varies. We will try and signpost these that you might see quite a lot of variation in practice depending from consultant to consultant. Or from, but we'll try to give a broad overview without getting bogged down in those too much. We're going to have a little bit about one of the most important parts of any airway management and induction, which is preoxygenation. We're going to talk about ventilation. We're going to talk about supraglottic airways. We're going to talk about endotracheal intubation. And then we're going to talk a little bit about what to do if it's not going well as a rough guide, and then talk about a rapid sequence induction.
0: What is important about preoxygenating a patient?
1: Preoxygenation is extremely important. There's a lot of ways to do it, but it's very good to try and pick up the best practice for it when you start.
0: pre is about increasing your apnea time, which is the time they stop breathing to the time they start desaturating. It is a result of your FRC, which is functional residual capacity, which is something to read about because it gives you the thought and the reasoning as to why some people desaturate quicker than others I would advocate that you pre-oxygenate all your patients to an end-tidal greater than 90% because that gives you time to adjust your airway techniques if you're needing to go into backup, if you are struggling to, for example, get the eye gel in. That will depend on consultant to consultant and your level of supervision. But if they ask you, That's the default mode that I would go to. That goes on to the drugs have gone in. The patient's now not breathing. When do I ventilate, Duncan?
1: This practice can vary. As a rule of thumb, the way I was taught was when you get that loss of verbal contact with the patient, you can then do a basic airway manoeuvre, such as a head tilt chin lift, to see if there's any response to that. Then moving from there, you can go for a jaw thrust, or if you're brand new to it, ask
0: for a Goodell airway. You want to break things down learn how to give an adequate jaw thrust and how to ventilate safely with two hands with a goodell then you could remove that to one hand with a goodell then maybe the goodell could be removed and that way you're not trying to focus on was my jaw thrust accurate was i providing a good enough seal you've actually isolated each individual learning point first duncan how do we or how do i ventilate a patient The key things will be to have checked your anaesthetic circuit beforehand to make sure there's no leak, having an
1: appropriately sized mask for the patient, then at the point at which you're going to ventilate, as a novice you should practice at first with two hands and ideally with an airway adjunct such as a Goodell or a Pharyngeal airway, and have a second person to manipulate the bag of that bag valve mask.
0: So adequate ventilation for me is I can see misting of the mask, I can see the chest rise and the chest fall, and then I'm looking at end tidal CO2 as well. Yeah, with an appropriate pressure from the APL valve. Let's go on to plan one. So plan one, Duncan, is I've got a 25 BMI 30-year-old ASA1 for a routine procedure, and we can use a supraglottic airway. You've done a bit of ventilation, what do you do now at this point you've checked your ventilation
1: patients still oxygenated well your O.D.P. will hand you your supraglottic airway device this can either be an lma of some form or an eye gel now the technique to insertion varies slightly but basically the pitfalls that i found as a novice was getting that bloody tongue out of the way trying to get it round the corner of the posterior oropharynx just to sit above the glottis Something really important to talk about is we've slipped the LMA in. Mm-hmm. How do we know it's in the right place and it's working? You want to ideally look, listen, and monitor your eye gel or LMA. Look at it. Is it sat in a normal way in the patient's airway? It'll take you a couple of times looking at it to know when it looks normal or abnormal. But there are markings on some LMAs and on eye gels as to where it should ideally be orientated. Making sure that you can ventilate with a good seal and then also make sure that there is good end tidal co2 trace appearing on your monitoring between those three things as well as clinically looking at the chest rise of the patient misting of the tubing you can tell whether you've got a decent adequate ventilation or an inadequate ventilation
0: if you have a leak which means that air is leaking around the cuff of that lma that air could either be going into the stomach or it could be going out into the mouth and it's not properly ventilating the patient. So there's different ways you can adjust that by changing the head, maybe upsizing, downsizing the LMA or i-gel that you've got. And if you can't get a leak free, you then need to work out, is that leak significant, which is normally within about 10% of the volume that you're trying to do, or a decision-making process, do I just need to intubate them? And there are times where you won't use an LMA, this list isn't exhaustive, but certain types of surgeries, if the patient's going to be difficult to ventilate anyway, you may just go to a tube.
1: You will have a period where you're struggling, but that is perfectly normal. It would be weird if you didn't have difficult LMA or eye gel insertions as a novice. So it is a learning curve and it's a tactile thing, unfortunately. Have a go and learn to be safe and not be too forceful. I think that's a
0: really good lesson. It's the same with CVC insertions, bougie insertions. If you're really having to force it in... You should abandon and think again. You should abandon. You're dealing with soft tissue, so you will go through things. Just remember, what is your get out of jail? So if you've been fiddling around for 30 seconds to a minute, your task fixated. Think about removing, going back to ventilation, regaining control, and then talking about your next plan. Key thing is oxygenation. That's Elamaze eye gels. Again, not exhaustive, but a
1: rough talk through of pre-insertion, insertion and post-insertion. Cool. So, Owen, let's talk about a different case. It's going to be a laparoscopic appendix. You're going to need to intubate. Intubation is probably the scariest thing, as an obviously that you have to do. You're suddenly handed this giant metal thing. You're going to put it in someone's mouth You're told to avoid the teeth. Key things with this again, adequate pre-oxygenation gives you time. Ventilation, again, you can fall back to it if you're struggling. Then it's important to have your equipment and have adequate equipment there. From day one, even if you're not intubating patients, talk to the consultant and ODP and get used to holding a laryngoscope. Get shown how to properly insert it into the mouth when you're inserting a laryngoscope. The tip of getting the tongue out the way makes such a big difference communication is important at this point if in doubt you can just say i'm thinking i should have a look now and the can will often off and say yeah or give it a few more seconds
0: for your basic technique when you look is when they've got adequate muscle relaxation on board so what you do is you insert that into the back of the mouth sweeping the tongue over to the sides you're aiming for the tip to sit in the villacula which is the base of the epiglottis Have a look at the airway anatomy that we will put on to the bio here. And then you are lifting up and away. And we will put a YouTube video of someone doing this because you should see it before you come in ideally. Then you have got a view which you need to communicate to your ODP. Again, we'll put a link in bio to this of whether or not it's one, two, three or four. They can then prepare you for intubation if it's between one and two or provide some airway manoeuvre, which helps, called BURP, which stands for Backwards Upwards Rightwards Pressure. And then you can insert the tube. So ideally you should be orientating yourself with the tube before you're suddenly handed it to shove it in.
1: You want to visualise the ET tube. tube. Depending on the ET tube you have, there will be a black line marker, either which sits between the vocal cords or the vocal cords should sit between two of those black line markers. So once you've seen that tube pass into the right place in between the vocal cords, then you remove your laryngoscope, you ask the ADP to inflate the cuff, you will then attach your ventilator tubing, the catheter mount, all the while holding the tube so it doesn't migrate anywhere. Then bag the patients. The very important thing with endotracheal intubation, you're checking if it's in the right place. So you want to see chest rise and fall, you want to see misting of the tube and the tubing, and very importantly, you want to see your end tidal CO2 trace waveform. And that's got to be for a minimum of at least six decent waveforms the key sequence of events that happens very rapidly after the cuff goes up you start ventilating right okay tubes in the right place you need to secure that tube at the correct distance and you also need to make sure you remember to turn on ventilation
0: Uh, with a maintenance agent with a maintenance agent if you're using gas that sounds brilliant but what if it's not great and not going well duncan
1: as a novice You will have times where you cannot intubate. In all likelihood, it's going to take a few goes to get used to holding the laryngoscope, manipulating the airway. Even bag valve mask ventilating can be very difficult at first. If it's not going well, just remember, you're going to be with a senior trainee or a consultant. You're going to have an ODP with you. There is a safety net, okay? If it's not going well and you're struggling, vocalize it to the room. I'm struggling to ventilate. 99% of the time, they will say, okay, we'll try this or try that. If you've pre-oxygenated well, you do have time to practice. If you're really struggling and you're starting to panic, you can always ask the question, can you please take over? A really important thing that got drilled into me as a novice and I've kept up in my practice and I find it very useful for the human factors side is say everything you're doing and seeing, particularly as a novice, it can give you a little bit of time to practice further and people will give you advice. If you say as a novice, my view isn't that good, let me come out, okay, I'm ventilating again, I'm ventilating well, yeah. then often, in a really nice way, the ODP consultant or senior trainee can run through, OK, so how can we make this better? How can we get that view better? And you can practice on the go. And I think that's a really important thing to do.
0: We'll get on to something that sounds very exciting when you're a novice, but for us becomes bread and butter, and that's a rapid sequence induction.
1: And RSI is something that's talked about a lot. And actually, as a novice, you may not see one for quite some time unless you go to an emergency theater. And even then, you may see some modified versions of the RSI. Again, clinical controversy, practice varies a lot. A rapid sequence induction kind of is what it says on the tin it's a rapid set of things that happen during the induction in order to, first of all, provide you with optimal intubating conditions and decrease the patient's aspiration risk in order to secure an airway and secure ventilation yeah i think that's very broadly what you're trying to achieve with an rsi gaining those optimal intubation conditions will vary with the drugs you give broadly you would give an iv opiate a hypnotic agent and a muscle relaxant that would be in a dose that acts rapidly rapidly means within 60 seconds just taking a step back as a novice an rsi from an airway management perspective means there's going to be an intubation endotracheal intubation and depending on the protocol in the center you work in cricoid
0: pressure will be applied to the patient that's pressure on the neck which i'll explain to the patient beforehand because it can sound yep. like it's quite suffocating that is in theory designed to pressurize the trachea because of the rings that you get in the trachea squashing down the esophagus and then reduce your risk of aspiration in theory if the patient's actively vomiting, it gets released. If you can't see, then it's one of the things that can be thought about to being released. It's got a big clinical controversy surrounding it. We're not debating its use or unused. We're just saying it gets used in practice and to be aware of it. Yeah. The other thing of, with oh, RSIs is there's checklists that go with them because you need certain things to be available, including tilting beds, suction, working have a checklist ready. I think two great resources for that is obviously the
1: Difficult airway Society guidelines and also the e-learning for healthcare. There is a subsection on airways and airway equipment and I think that's a great place to familiarise yourself with what things look like before you then go and physically see them and play with them in theatres.
0: Some top tips that we can end with are the benefit of using a video as your consultant can also see it at the same time, don't go silent, don't get task fixated. Do pull back, Duncan and the others. Be kind to yourself. You're learning. You will
1: fail procedures and you will succeed with procedures. And everyone does that in their own time.
0: Hello and welcome to the outro. Thank you again to Kwame for his time. And I hope he's enjoying clerking someone with chest pain in minors as we speak. I've got a few questions that have been messaged in from our NovPod peer reviewers. Firstly, does the induction agents for a classic RSI include opiate? The answer to that is no. The classic RSI is thiopentone and suxamethonium. This has been modified by a lot of different people to include an opiate and other induction. This is something to ask your consultant colleagues about, what they use in RSI and why. Next up, what is your top tip for success of intubation? That will be positioning. Try and get the tragus in line with the sternal notch and have a look at some diagrams of the eye line that you're trying to get. And that will help you. It's not only positioning of the patient, it's positioning of you. It's much better to do this prior to induction than it is after when the patient is asleep. A uh, cheeky novice has sent in, did you mean external laryngeal manoeuvre instead of your outdated backwards, upwards, rightwards pressure? And yes, I did mean external laryngeal manoeuvre as a way of manipulating the larynx for your view. As part of our further reading, as a follow-up for this episode, we've got the DAS Intubation Guidelines, the Difficult Airway Society. There's a DAS Intubation ITU checklist. I think that's a pretty useful Things to have a look through. We've also got a link to the Cormac and Lahare grading system, which is what you're describing when you're having a look with the direct laryngoscope. And then there's some really good e-learning for health modules looking at the induction of anesthesia, the management of the airway and failed intubation. Our next episode is maintenance and emergence. So I hope to see you there metaphorically. Bye for now.